Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Risa Leibowitz, General Counsel with the American Association of University Professors, who assesses the U.S. Supreme Court ruling that ended affirmative action and how universities can honor their commitment to racial diversity. Kristen McGuire, Executive Director of the group Young Invincibles, who condemns the Supreme Court's decision that blocked President Biden's student debt relief plan and her group's determination to continue the fight. And independent filmmaker Josh Fox, who talks about The Welcome Table, his new documentary film that brings attention to the global climate migration crisis. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. When the Green Revolution arrived in the 1960s, new rice hybrids were developed, and with the proper mix of fertilizer and irrigation, these new varieties of rice boosted crop yields in India and China, setting the stage for future growth and industrialization. But The Economist magazine reports that today, rice yields are stagnant as rising temperatures wither rice paddies and floods destroy plantations. With rising populations in Asia and Africa, it's estimated that the price of rice will increase 30 percent by 2050. Because rice production is vulnerable to climate change, a 1 degree Celsius increase in temperature can lead to a 10 percent decline in rice yields. Rising sea levels also cause harmful water intrusion into low-lying areas like Vietnam's Mekong Delta. Rice, the staple grain for an estimated 3 billion people, also produces an estimated 8% of all global methane emissions from human activity. While fossil fuels can be replaced by other energy sources, rice won't be so easy to replace although scientists are now working to develop new varieties for a hotter planet. The lack of rain has led to severe drought conditions this spring across the rich agricultural corn belt in the heartland of the United States. Rural communities in Iowa and Illinois, long reliant on ample spring rains, have been forced to impose water restrictions, including limiting the watering of lawns and gardens. Without new rains in coming weeks, corn, soy, and wheat farmers may have to give up on harvesting this year's crop, which would have a dramatic impact on the food supply and prices across the world. Midwest farmers can now expect more droughts and extreme weather as climate change takes hold. This is the fourth year in a row the U.S. Department of Agriculture has declared a significant drought in the Corn Belt. This is one of the earliest droughts in the Midwest in 40 years, forcing farmers to irrigate fields a month early. Corn stalks are now 10 to 20 inches short of normal. After two years of often intense public hearings, the California Reparations Task Force voted in May to approve a more than 1,000-page document including more than 200 recommendations on how to address centuries of unfair treatment for black Californians, especially descendants of enslaved people. 
It recommended that California formally apologize for its role in enabling slavery and for the many tentacles of white supremacy in its history. The document also recommended the state make cash payments to those whose ancestors were enslaved. According to The Economist, the task force report estimates an eligible black resident who has lived seven decades in California could be owed up to $1.2 million. The effort is being closely watched by reparations advocates across the country who see California's proposal as a potential model to follow. But advocates' thorniest challenge lies ahead, gaining the support of other racial and ethnic groups, including Latinos and Asians that have also endured racist government policies and now make up the majority of the state's population. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. In just over one year, the U.S. Supreme Court, reshaped by three justices nominated by President Donald Trump, has ignored decades of precedents and removed federal protection for abortion rights, weakened environmental regulations, and struck down gun safety laws. In just the past week, the right-wing extremist supermajority ruled that a Colorado non-discrimination law that made it illegal for businesses to discriminate against LGBTQ customers was unconstitutional, blocked President Biden's plan for student debt relief, and effectively ended affirmative action in college admissions. In their affirmative action decision, the six right-wing justices proclaimed the ruling as a step toward a more colorblind society, where students will be measured by their accomplishments, not their race. But in her scathing dissent, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson condemned the majority view, saying, quote, with let them eat cake obliviousness, today the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by fiat. But deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life, unquote. Your reporter spoke with Riza Lieberwitz, general counsel with the American Association of University Professors and professor of labor and employment law, at Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Here she assesses the flawed rationale the high court cited to end affirmative action and how colleges and universities across the country can respond to honor their commitment to racial diversity. What we see here is a pattern of a very extreme conservative right-wing position by this so-called supermajority of six justices who are relentlessly, through their decisions, undermining the progress that has been made for civil rights, for expanding the rights of women, for expanding the rights of people of color, gay and lesbian rights. What we can see here with this decision, dealing with Harvard and University of North Carolina, is part of that pattern of rolling back the clock through these judicial decisions and undermining the progress that's been made to expand civil rights in multiple sorts of institutions. 
And so the dissents, the two dissents, one authored by Justice Sotomayor, the other one, as you noted, by Justice Jackson, point this out. And they talk about the progress that affirmative action has made in public and private universities and the ways in which the court majority ignores the reality of the continuing need for race-conscious affirmative action programs for admissions. And the dissents also point out the way in which the court is ignoring the reality of continued racial inequality, as well as the ways in which the 14th Amendment and the decisions in particular by the court since Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 have recognized that to create racial equality requires that we have affirmative measures taken to make the vision of the 14th Amendment, the vision of Brown v. Board, a reality by actually eliminating racial inequality and moving towards true racial equality. Thank you for that, Professor Lieberwitz. I I did want to ask you, what did the court do and what did it not do regarding a college or university's ability to ensure they have the ability to enroll a diverse student body? And I'll, I'll note here that Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts did something that a lot of legal scholars found uh, interesting or hypocritical, but there was a footnote that exempted military academies from their decision, which indicates a bit of hypocrisy, possibly, in how they reached their conclusion for the rest of the population of America. Well, I think you asked the question just um, just right. That is, what did they do in this the majority doing this decision, and what did the majority not do, which is very important as well. Well, what the majority opinion did was to say, well, these interests are commendable goals in uh, diversity and what flows, benefits flowing from a diverse student body, that's commendable, but it's no longer considered a compelling interest. And that the use of race as any factor, the court said, was no longer permissible in what they viewed as the race-blind approach of the 14th Amendment. Now, of course, the dissenting opinions point out that there is no such thing as race blindness in the United States. We have continued racial inequality, and to carry out that vision of racial equality, we have to also be race-conscious. But the majority opinion says the explicit use of race is no longer permitted. Now, that rolls back the clock again on settled law, but there was this statement, as you pointed out, that Justice Roberts and the majority said that universities may consider an applicant's discussion of how race affected that applicant's life, as Roberts said, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise, but that this should not be viewed as a way of considering race. Instead, the individualized uh, evaluation of the student's application needs to be one that's individual for that student, how that student's abilities can contribute to the university, but not based on race. Now, Justice Sotomayor says this is really a disingenuous approach. As she said, it's like putting lipstick on a pig by undercutting the the real value of diversity, but at least it does provide that opening. But just to uh, note about the hypocrisy and the contradictory approach to exempting the military academies from this decision, it is ironic, and the dissenting uh, opinions point that out, 
I guess, ironic at best to exempt the military to say, well, uh, diversity is important with regard to uh, who can join the military and potentially be killed, uh, but it's not a compelling interest when it comes to education, which is really the foundation of a democratic society. That was Risa Leibowitz, general counsel with the American Association of University Professors and professor of labor and employment law at Cornell University School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Find more analysis and commentary on the Supreme Court's ruling on affirmative action by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Following the pattern established over the last year of ignoring both legal precedent and nullifying congressional legislation, the Supreme Court's right-wing extremist majority blocked President Biden's student debt forgiveness plan, denying relief to roughly 40 million Americans who stood to have from $10,000 to $20,000 in student debt canceled. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat of New York, observed that the Supreme Court's recent decisions on student loans and affirmative action show that the right-wing majority is ignoring the will of elected officials and beginning to assume the power of a legislature, signaling a dangerous creep towards authoritarianism and centralization of power in the court. Within hours of the high court's ruling, President Biden announced he'll take a new path to honor his campaign pledge to provide student debt relief. Biden's new approach will rely on the 1965 Higher Education Act that grants the Secretary of Education the power to compromise waiver release federal student loans. Your reporter spoke with Kristen McGuire, executive director of the group Young Invincibles. Here she slams the Supreme Court's ruling that blocked the president's debt relief plan and discusses her group's determination to fix the unjust burden of student debt on young people. We've always maintained at Young Invincibles that this debt cancellation under the HEROES Authority was legal uh, because it did give the, the authority to waive or modify student loan provisions in response to certain conditions. And clearly the pandemic was one of those conditions. Uh, we are upset that the economic security of over 40 million Americans became so heavily politicized that the Supreme Court was an, unable to rule on behalf of the people. So I think when we talk about our initial reactions, it's the fact that an issue that should not have been politicized became so very politicized that we ruled against the voice of the people. Given the fact that your organization, Young Invincibles, focuses on young adults and their issues, tell us about the impact especially on young adults. There are many Americans that continue to carry student debt uh, well into their 60s, some into their 70s, of course. But the impact of this debt on young adults, as President Biden recently said, it delays the start of careers, of families, of purchasing a house, just innumerable things. Tell us more. Sure. So a concept that we like to call delayed adulthood 
where young people, they graduate college and, you know, on any other situation, we would expect young adults to be able to graduate college, uh, go to their first job, maybe even have their first home and start their families. And what we're seeing because of this debt is that they are not entering those what we would traditionally call adulthood milestones. So when we hear the, you know, the rumors and the snickers um, and the means that Gen Z doesn't want to move from their parents' home, it's not because they don't want to. It's because they can't. And so what we're seeing is young people not starting their families uh, at, at the same rate or at the same age as they have in, in previous generations. They also are not earning as much money as previous generations did. You know, we released uh, a paper, a report called Financial Health of Young America, and it says that young people today have less wealth and income than, than when their parents did at the same age. Kristen, many on the right, Republicans, conservatives, and a whole slew of political activists of the right, often criticize the plan to offer student debt relief. And they talk about it as a giveaway to law and medical school graduates that blue-collar plumbers and construction workers would pay for. And that's kind of the line of the day from these folks. How do you respond to such criticism? I think there's a couple of ways to respond. First, I want to say that Young Invincibles is a nonpartisan 501c3 organization, so we don't really participate in, in the partisan conversations, but we do deal with facts and data, and the data simply does not support that. Uh, student loan cancellation would only have benefited folks who make under $125,000 a year, so that would not be the rich and elite doctors and lawyers. That would be working-class Americans who are in the middle class that our President Joe Biden said he wanted to shore up and support and expand. Those would have been the people who would have benefited from the student loan cancellation. Now, President Biden responded in, in a brief talk after this Supreme Court ruling blocking his plan for student debt relief was handed down under the authority of something called the Higher Education Act of 1965. Biden talked about it being a slower route toward relief. What can you tell us about this plan by the Biden administration to continue to pursue a student debt relief? Sure. And this plan would go through a process that is called negotiated rulemaking. And they actually released uh, the notification for the committee and public comment when he made that announcement. Um, this, this route will take anywhere from eight months to over a year uh, to lead to the, the final pathway of uh, debt cancellation. It's unclear uh, which communities or what the amount will be, and that's why it has to go through this process of negotiated rulemaking where those terms would be outlined. So we don't have a lot of details there, uh, but it is a viable pathway uh, from, what, from what we can gather. However, it's not a quick pathway. And I think it's important to note that, that student borrowers deserve a quick action that's not loaded with bureaucracy and and red tape. And I think that student borrowers, uh, all 40 million plus, have been more than patient. So we do hope that the president can have a sense of urgency along with the Department of Education to swiften this process. There are some advocates for student debt relief who are critical of the Biden administration for not taking this approach under the Higher Education Act earlier thinking that the route they did take was vulnerable to the Supreme Court action. I guess there's no telling whether there will be future challenges to this Plan B. But what is your view on President Biden and his follow-through on his campaign pledge to cancel student debt? 
Has he been straight up, you think? Or are there other things that he should have and could have done? So, so here's our take. Uh, we've been advocating for debt cancellation for quite some time. President Biden is the first president to at least attempt to make good on this promise. Now, we know that he can do more than attempt, and perhaps there were some critics saying he should have used HEA authorization uh, beforehand, but the HEROES Act was a viable pathway. Um, And again, when we're thinking about partisan politics, the, the real issue here is ensuring that we can center the American people, center our next generation of leaders, invest in our country by investing in higher education. And I think that's the real problem that we should be discussing. That was Kristen McGuire, executive director of the group Young Invincibles. Learn more about what advocacy groups are doing to continue the fight for student debt relief by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The global refugee crisis continues to grow as millions of people are displaced by wars, poverty, and the direct impacts of the climate crisis, such as floods, droughts, and wildfires. Some conflicts, such as the civil war in Syria, have their roots in climate change-impacted drought that drove people into cities and exacerbated social and political tensions. Most displaced people stay within their countries of origin, but an increasing number are crossing borders in search of security and basic resources needed for survival. Independent filmmaker Josh Fox is taking on this subject with his newest film, The Welcome Table, which highlights the stories of climate refugees from around the world and an effort to construct a legal definition of climate refugee, which doesn't yet exist, under international humanitarian law. The film is centered around the United Nations prediction that at least 1.2 billion people will be displaced by climate change by the year 2050. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Fox about his COVID-delayed project and an upcoming celebration with climate refugees from around the world in New Orleans. What the film does is it tracks climate migration stories and climate displacement stories all over the world starting in the with the wildfires in California and the hurricanes in the Caribbean that that caused enormous damage the welcome table is a reaction to the fact that most governments in the world in reaction to the climate crisis and certainly the migration issues that uh, that are coming along with it is that governments are building walls they're building walls to, and they're militarizing borders and they're increasing incarceration and to do so they're whipping up xenophobia and racism to get their populations to believe that people from other countries are not people um, and they should be kept out uh, even though most of those countries where people are choosing to migrate are the ones responsible for the climate crisis and the people migrating away from the countries that are affected are the ones who are not responsible for the climate crisis however you know the walls is the real hidden climate budget. They don't want to admit it, but they're spending more on militarization and incarceration of borders um, than they are on mitigating climate or on creating renewable energy. But a wall on its side can be a table. 
the wall itself is just a metaphor, a metaphor that says, keep out, go away. We don't want you. Uh, a table is a metaphor for the opposite, saying we are all here to sit together, to eat together, to celebrate together, to be human together. So as we travel around this country and, in, and all around the world, uh, shooting these climate stories and, and, and showing these people who are both the aid workers on the front line and the victims of the climate crisis, and we're inviting them all to a single table in New Orleans, a very long table where 30 or 40 people can sit and eat together, people from Brazil and Peru and people from uh, southern Louisiana and California and New York and people uh, from Africa um, and Bangladesh and, and, and Europe, all sitting at the same table discussing their stories, telling their stories in a very healing event, talking about food and culture, talking about celebrating our differences, celebrating the beautiful cornucopia of, of, of humanity, this incredible, gorgeous mosaic of all the cultures that we have um, that, that can sit together and celebrate. And then we're extending that table a thousand feet long, and we're making this a big event in New Orleans, like a big party. Most films about climate change are tragedies, right? They're horribly depressing and sad and awful because it is a tragic situation. But this film we think of as a comedy in the Shakespearean sense. Um, in, the, in the beginning of a Shakespeare comedy like Twelfth Night or The Tempest or, uh, uh, or As You Like It, the lovers are thrown out into the wilderness without a country. They have no place to live. They have no, uh, they're marooned on an island. And at the end, they all get together and, and there's big celebrations of those people coming together and solving their problems. They find a new uh, a place to live and a way to be. And the dignitaries and musicians and poets all celebrate those people. So what we're doing is we're creating that celebration at the end of our film. And we're, we have not filmed that part yet. We're filming that in New Orleans in the fall. And we are currently raising money to create that, uh, that celebration and bring the migrants and the climate displaced folks all the way from wherever they have been displaced to that table in New Orleans so they can be celebrated and those in harm's way can be shown the generosity and the beauty of humanity uh, rather than the xenophobia, racism, incarceration and hatred that is being whipped up right now to fund these walls. You said in your research, you found that the offending governments are spending more you know, on walls and prisons and military efforts to keep people out than, than on mitigation or on helping people. Um, I don't doubt that that's true, but I'm curious because I haven't heard that exact thing before. Can you share the data or where you found that? The person I'm quoting and talking about that is Amali Tower. Amali Tower runs the organization Climate Refugees, uh, an amazing organization. And her emphasis is to try to get actual refugee status for, for climate migrants. Currently, refugee status is only conferred upon people who have a designation based on the Refugee Convention of World War II, which is that you know refugees are defined in a certain way as people who have been oppressed. Um, in certain ways, whether that's race or identity or sexual preference or so forth. Climate refugees are of an entirely different type of status. So she's campaigning to get climate refugees recognized with an actual legal definition. So I would urge people to look into her work, Climate Refugees, the organization. She, Amali Tower, is actually speaking at our uh, party uh, in New York on July 12th and also is going to be featured in the film. Um, I, I follow uh, her to, to Africa, to Kenya and to Tanzania and, and, and watch her, her doing her work on this on this issue that was independent filmmaker josh fox whose new documentary film is titled the welcome table learn more about the film in a july 12th fundraiser in new york city featuring some of the people in the documentary by visiting our between the lines website at btlonline.org
www.thepeacekeepers.org. listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WBCR in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, KTAL in Las Cruces, New Mexico, KMUD in Garberville, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. <laughs>